Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Joshua 2, 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here to spy out tonight, to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden him. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Morning, guys. Uh, my name is Nathan, and I'm the pastor of international missions here at Sojourn. Uh, and it's my pleasure to kind of wrap up our series on the mothers of Jesus uh, with the story of Rahab. Um, so my wife and I have been here at Sojourn for, we're in our eighth year, ninth year, being here, eighth year on staff. And as we look back on 2017, we're really overwhelmed uh, by the amount of love we have for this church. And by church, we mean people. And you guys have journeyed with us through some really difficult things, including this year. It's been a hard year for us, for many of you. Some of you, it's been an awesome year. You've had babies and started new jobs and all kinds of stuff, um, but not for everyone. And we're going to dive into the story of Rahab this morning. Over Christmas break, as I was with family and friends, um, I would say, hey, I'm preaching in my church. And they'd say, oh, that's great. What are you preaching on? Rahab. Oh, that's an interesting holiday message, huh? Um, so hopefully it makes a little more sense after we're finished. But before we dive in, I want us to just stop for a moment and invite the Spirit to be with us, to meet us in this moment. So let's pray. Father God, we ask you to be with us in this moment. Lord, we know you're present, but we ask for you to come in a special way, to meet us in our brokenness and despair, to meet us in the lies that we force feed ourselves, that we can experience the grace of God in new and powerful ways on this last day of the year. Lord, may we end this year with a deep belief in the mercy and beauty of Jesus. It's in your name I pray, amen. 
So part of my job, the really cool parts of my job is I did get to experience what God's doing around the world. And one of the things that happened a few years ago is I got a call from a buddy of mine. He's a, a mission pastor in, in Washington, D.C. And he says, I just got an invitation to go to Lebanon to spend time with Syrian refugees. Um, and I'd like for you to come with me. So me and a couple other guys, we flew to Lebanon. We drove north five miles from the border where ISIS had control of Syria. So it was a little... Uh, it was a little nerve-wracking, and we got to sit with refugees who had fled their land. Syria is experiencing a crazy civil war, a genocide of sorts. And we got to, to go to refugee camps, hand out relief supplies, and meet with refugees. It's an experience that I'll never forget that's really shaped me as a believer. But I'll never forget meeting Fatima and her family. Fatima is an older lady, um, you can see here, an older lady who has two sons, and they're married and have, have kids. And Fatima was a, a really important woman in her community. Her husband was a really important man. And during the Civil War, he was on the wrong side, I guess, depending how you look at it. And he was murdered, brutally murdered uh, for his stance. So Fatima and her family had to flee from Syria and went to Lebanon. And as soon as they arrived in this town in Lebanon, they were met by the church. The church knew of their presence. And they met this family, this Muslim family, and show the love of Christ to them through Christian community. Now, Fatima is someone who has fled and she's mourning the loss of her husband, the loss of her home. Her, her home was bombed. She's, she's mourning the loss of all that she knows and she loves. And this Muslim woman was met by the love and care of the church. In her darkest hour, the love of God met her. Now, I wish I could say that Fatima and her family were believers. They're not. It was beautiful to be able to sit with them and share the gospel. And they study the Bible and they're, they're open to truth, but they've not come to faith yet. And when I think about Fatima's story, as I think about the pain and desperation and the despair that she felt, I'm reminded of another story and another woman who experienced something similar. And that's the story of Rahab. And as we open the book of Joshua, Joshua 1, we see the nation of Israel beginning to experience the promises of God. From Genesis 12 onward, they were promised this great nation. And they came out of Egypt into the Exodus. They went to the promised land. They sent in spies to spout out the land. But instead of believing the promises of God, they were afraid and they retreated. And they spent 40 years wandering the wilderness. But now they stand at the edge of the promised land, looking in to all that God had promised. And right there are their enemies occupying the land the Canaanites. And there's a, a town right at the edge called Jericho, fortified city. You guys are probably familiar with the story of Jericho. They marched around it. The walls came crumbling down. Your kids know it if you don't know it. And that's Rahab. Rahab lived in that city. She lived in Jericho. And it's in this story, this spy mission of sorts, that we meet the woman of Jericho, or we meet the woman of Rahab, and we hear of her bold faith and her lasting legacy. So let's open up to Joshua chapter two and let's explore what happened in this passage. So we see in verse one, the spies enter Jericho and they find refuge in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, you might be like me. When I first read this story, I thought, ooh, this is a little dicey. Like, how do you handle this? Like these men are going to a prostitute's house. But when you, you look at the language and you understand the story and the culture of what was happening, they weren't going to Rahab's house for sexual reasons. Oftentimes in that, in that day and time, uh, a hotel or an inn where travelers would stay was the same place a brothel would be. 
So they were going to this place because that's where a hotel or an inn would be. And also, this is where they could get really good information, intel on the city. So if they're spies, they probably wanna go to a seedy place to get good information. So they're spying out the city, but unfortunately their secret mission has been revealed. I'm not sure if they had like big t-shirts that said, we're spies, we've come to conquer you. Um, but they found, someone found them out and they ratted them out to the king and the king sent word to Rahab and said, give up the men who are in your house. And in verse four, in a bold move, instead of giving these Hebrew men over, these foreigners, men she did not know, Rahab chose to protect them. She hid them on her roof. In a moment when she should have given over the men and chosen to protect herself, because if, if the king would have found out, surely that would have meant death for her and her family. And there's a lot that we could explore here about you know, why this happened and what's going on in this passage, but I want us to focus in on the main point of the passage and it focuses on the courageous faith of Rahab. And in a moment when a, a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman should have aligned with her people and protected her own skin, she trusted in the word of the Lord. She trusted in God's promises. So that's what I wanna look at, Rahab's bold faith. Verse 10 and 11, it's the focus of the passage. We have heard, this is Rahab talking to the spies. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted with fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven in earth, heaven and above and on earth below. So when she's facing this, this moment of desperation, she has heard the stories of what the God of Israel has done, how he's destroyed Nations, he destroyed the greatest nation on earth in Israel, parted the waters. And these men come to her and she says, I know who you are. Everyone knows who you are. And we are all terrified of you. But this testimony, this, this proclamation of faith is more than just self-preservation. Rahab is doing more than saying, please spare me. Now she is scared. Everybody was scared. But what she is doing is she is proclaiming the Lord is God in heaven and on earth below, and I will follow him. So you have to understand the context of the time is, is Canaanite, Canaan had their own gods. They followed their own gods and they had their own people. And for her to make a declaration of faith that your God, the God of the Hebrews, is the one God in heaven above and on earth below, she was turning her back on her people. She was turning her back on her faith. And she was trusting in something she had heard of. Rahab's bold faith and actions are working are worth looking at more closely. So let's look in on this, this verse. Rahab was the most unlikely person to experience God's grace. To call her an outsider is an understatement. She had, think about it this way. She had three strikes against her. Number one, she was a Gentile. She wasn't even a part of the nation of Israel. She was an outsider. She was a woman. And as we've seen in the series, women are often, were often looked down upon in that time. And then thirdly, she was a prostitute. So she didn't belong to the house of Israel. She didn't belong to the nation of, the, of Canaanites. She was an outsider wherever she went. She did not belong and she knew it. She knew it. Rahab was the very definition of an outcast, unloved and unwanted by everybody, but one person. That was God himself. And that's why I say the focal point of the story is Rahab and her conversion 
Because in the midst of God delivering the promise to his people and doing all these amazing miracles, what is elevated, the main part of the story, is Rahab experiencing the grace of God. Make no mistake, God chose Rahab. Rahab's salvation in the story is not an interesting side note. It's the main point that God sought Rahab out. That's one of the most beautiful things about the kingdom of God, that God has been working in my own life the last couple of weeks, is the fact that he often pursues the outcast. That's his way. We see this in the life of Jesus as well. Jesus often sought out the outcast, the sinner, the prostitute, the leper, the social outcast. Think about all the stories of the gospels and the Jesus that we see and that we read about and that we know would probably make us very uncomfortable today. Look in Mark chapter two, verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So in the context of Rahab, this is a crazy verse to think about, that the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came for the broken. He came for the outcast. He came for those who don't fit. But the good news is you're just like Rahab. You're broken. You're an outcast. You are in a point of desperation. Maybe you've deceived yourself. Maybe you feel like you're doing fine. You don't need God, or you can put God in a box and set him off to the side. But the same desperation that Rahab felt in that moment of destruction, we are experiencing too, but by the grace of God. God's mercy meets us in our most needed moment. So let me ask you this morning, are you sick? Now, some of you may have the flu, so you're saying like, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's not what I mean. Um, If you do have the flu, please don't touch me. But I'm talking about the sick that Mark chapter two talks about, where Jesus came for the sick, the broken, the needed, the needy, the desperate. Are you sick this morning? Are you aware and distraught by the sin and brokenness of your life? Today's story reminds us that Jesus came for you. Jesus came for me. Rahab was the least likely to experience God's mercy, to trust in the power and promises of God. But she did. And because of her bold faith, God honored her with a lasting legacy, which is what our whole series in Advent has been about. These women who don't fit in the genealogy, but they do fit. And they fit because God chose them. Let's look in Joshua 6 about Rahab's legacy. Really, this morning we're looking at Joshua 2 through 6. And Joshua 6 is the end of the story. So Joshua 2, the spies go in, they make this promise to save Rahab and her family. The spies go back to Joshua and say, everyone's terrified us. We got this. Let's, let's go get Jericho. And they go to the Jordan um, and there's kind of a, a river that separates them and Jericho. They cross the Jordan and then they take Jericho and Joshua 6. And here's what it says. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. So this is kind of the last verse of that story, but that last phrase is very significant. Look at it. She lives among the Israelites to this day. God not only spared Rahab from destruction, 
He welcomed her into the people of God. It's significant. It's significant. God's not just saving her from the wrath to come, but he welcomes her into the family. And we know this because the writer of Joshua is saying, she's alive and she's with us today. You can go see her. She just lives down the road. He doesn't exactly say that, but she lives among the Israelites to this day. She was adopted into the people of God. And too often when I hear people talk about their salvation or I hear people sharing their faith, what they solely focus on is, hey, if you don't wanna go to hell, believe in Jesus. Or, hey, I'm good. I confessed my sins. I believed in Jesus and I'm not gonna go to hell. And that is a huge part of your salvation. But that is just part of it. Because part of our salvation in Jesus, our relationship with Jesus is we belong. We belong. We belong to a family because we've been adopted into the family of God. And this is a picture of the gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus not only saves us from eternal destruction, but it draws us into a family. We were outcasts like Rahab, and we've been made a member of God's family. If you're a Christian, I wanna encourage you today that you belong. You belong. You belong to the family of God. I can look out and see hundreds of you, and we are family. Now, I know family can be a difficult thing in the holiday season. Some of you at Thanksgiving and Christmas went home and you have a wonderful family who loved you. Some of you went home and your family is messed up, jacked up, and it's very difficult. Some of you went home and you don't have family. There's no home to go to. Just a few weeks ago, a lot of you guys know this, just a few weeks ago, I lost my brother. He died tragically. So I went home this Christmas season and spent time with my mother who's all alone. And it's a difficult reminder. And if I sit in that, it's overwhelming. But if I step back from that and I remember God's promises that I belong, I belong to a bigger and a better family, the church. If we look at Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus, it gives us an even deeper picture, a better picture into the legacy left by Rahab. Matthew 1, 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So this long genealogy, and we have this kind of two verses right here, and we see this radical story. When I read this, I was blown away by why God would do this. Why would he put this into a story? Look, Rahab, when she was saved, she was invited into the family of God, and then she apparently marries this godly man, and they have a son, Boaz, who we know from Jamal's sermon, from reading the book of Ruth, was a man of character, a man who loved and treated women well. That was Rahab's son. And then Rahab's great-great-grandson was King David. So through the lineage of Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, came the greatest king Israel ever had, King David, and Jesus himself. Jesus came through the lineage of Rahab. I think it's helpful for us to remember that the people we read about in the Bible, all the characters that we read and we talk about, these aren't just stories from the past. These are real people. They have real lives and many of their lives were interconnected. So take, for example, Rahab and Ruth. Just imagine, as you think about the story of Rahab and the story of Ruth, that was at the same period of time. So Rahab's daughter-in-law was Ruth. Rahab and Ruth would have shared meals together. They would have sat or reclined at the same table. They would have laughed over stories together. They would have talked about God's grace on them, an outsider, together. 
Or think about King David. Surely he would have heard stories about his distant grandmother, Rahab, and how by God's grace, God welcomed in a Gentile woman into his family. That was, that was David's lineage. That was the stories that he heard. It's been said before in this series, but it's worth saying again. Jesus is the only person in human history that could have chosen his own family. He's the only one who chose his own family. And he chose this family, this ragtag group of misfits. He chose Rahab to be the mother of Boaz, the mother-in-law of Ruth, the grandparent of King David. God chose Rahab as a mother in his own family. God did more than just save Rahab from destruction. He gave her a family. He invited her to be with him. And God's inclusion of Rahab into his own family not only shows his great love for her, but he shows his great love for all nations. Because what Rahab is, she is a window or a picture into God's love for all people, all people. God's desire has always been, hear me out, always been for all nations to know and worship him. The Bible from cover to cover, from Genesis chapter three, and the, the first promise of a Messiah to the end of Revelation is a story of God's pursuing love of every ethnic people group, every ethnic people group. You know, often I talk with people about missions and we can be very, uh, maybe focused on our own culture and people. And we forget that you and I are actually the people that this Bible's talking about. We are the, the nations. I mean, maybe there are some Jew, ethnic Jews here, but most of us are Gentile outcasts. And we receive the promises of God. We're recipients of the promises that God has given us here. So if we zoom out of Joshua 2, and we look at the larger story of Joshua 2 through 6, we see that God is making himself known to the nations around Israel. How is he doing that? After the spies came back to report to Joshua about the city of Jericho and says, listen, guys, these people are terrified of us. We can just walk in and take the city, which is what they do. They march around, the walls fall. Joshua led his people to the Jordan. So across the Jordan, they could see the promised land. They could see the city of Jericho. But between them and the promised land was a river, this barrier. And God did then what he had done in the past is he parts the water and his people walk across on dry ground. And this is what we see right after that. They set up a memorial and God gives us a glimpse into why he's doing what he's doing. Why did he bring them out of Egypt? Why did he allow them to cross the Red Sea? Why is he destroying his enemies? Why is his name being known? And here's, here's what he says. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So Joshua tells us that this whole passage, these five chapters, the purpose, the reason of what God is doing is number one, he's making his name known to the nations around. They're able to see his great power and might. And number two, he's doing these amazing things so that God's people would fear and adore him. Too often when we think about God's pursuing love of the nations, God's plan of redeeming the nations, somehow we think about it as God's plan B. I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian and I began learning the Bible, this is what I, how I understood the Bible went. Starting in Genesis, all the way through Malachi, or maybe even the Gospels, God chose the people Israel. He loved them only. He hated everybody else. They had their chance. They rejected Jesus. 
and then the, the nations got their chance. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says from beginning to end, God's plan A was to redeem all peoples. His pursuing love was being cast out to all peoples. Look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 was really the beginning of God's people, the nation of Israel. He chooses a pagan man in in Abram to save, to draw to himself, and he gives them three promises. He promises him a great nation, a great land, and the look at the last verse there. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So even in the founding of the nation of Israel, the promise given to Abram, to Abraham, was that through his lineage, through his family, through his nation, a savior would come to bless all nations. What about 1 Kings chapter eight? We see Solomon's, or David's son Solomon was able to build this beautiful temple to honor and worship the Lord. And as they build the temple, they have kind of an opening ceremony and he has a prayer of dedication. And this is part of Solomon's prayer of dedication. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks you to do so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. So what God is showing in this beautiful, glorious temple that he's allowed Solomon to build is even in that moment, the height of the kingdom of Israel is that God is pursuing the nations. They could come and experience and see the power and beauty of God. Malachi verse one, or chapter one, verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be sought to me, brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And then finally, we come to Luke chapter two. So all these promises, promise after promise after promise from Genesis onward to Malachi that God is gonna be blessing the nations through a savior. Jesus is born in the incarnation, the Advent season we're celebrating. After Jesus was born, he was brought to the temple to be dedicated. And there is a priest there named Simeon. And Simeon's dream, his prayer for his whole life was to be able to see the savior of the world, the fulfillment of God's promise. And this is what happens. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people, Israel. So in that moment, God fulfills his promise in this baby, this humble baby, born in a manger to Mary and Joseph, this thing that we celebrate through Advent, this man who loves God, holding the savior of the world. And what's his prayer? I can depart in peace because I have seen uh, a light for the Gentiles, the promise for the salvation of the entire world. God has always been seeking after the nations. His pursuing love has been for all peoples. Even today, as we sit here, God is doing his redeeming work around the world. Paul reminds us of this in Colossians 1, verse six. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. You know, 
uh, we have a lot of cool stories of, of ways that God has used sojourn or even people that we know of. God's been doing great works around the world. But as I was thinking about this truth that God's moving and shaping and changing people's lives, I was thinking about the time that I spent in Nepal. My, my wife and I, were mission, before we came to sojourn, we were missionaries in Nepal, which is a small country just north of India. And you know, before 1950, when the country opened to the West, kind of to the, to the modern world, there were less than a dozen Christians, a dozen Christians. So there were more Christians on this front row than an entire nation. And in 1950, the, the door, the walls opened up and people were able to go in. So in the last 70 years, from 1950 to today, it's gone from a dozen Christians to 800,000 Christians. It's one of the largest growths of the church we've ever seen in history. And what we see take place is the gospel is taking hold of people's hearts and those same people are sharing it with others. It's the gospel's moving out from their hearts to the lost. When I lived there, um, I was a single man. And one of the things I did is I had a group of men I was discipling. And uh, one of my friend's names was Hari. He's actually one of our partners at Sojourn. He has a prayer card in the back. You can grab his picture. But we would go out uh, a dozen years ago, more than a decade ago, we would go out to villages like this in the foothills of the Himalayas. And we would hike for weeks on end. And we'd go from village to village asking two questions. The first question was, is there a church in this village? And if there was a church, we knew, okay, the gospel's come to this place. We would go meet the pastor. We would go see the people, whatever. The second question was, do you know who Jesus is? And often the answer was, hmm, Jesus. You know, I think he's the next village down. You might, you might go see if Jesus lives there. I was like, okay, you don't know who Jesus is. <laughs> so too often we would go to a village and they had no contact with the gospel. They had no understanding of Jesus or the church. But one day we met a lady, we asked her this question and she took us to her village, to a shop owner, this little shop. And we met this man who told us an incredible story. The year before he and three other people from their village, a village is named Bugadoban, which means the connecting of two rivers, he and uh, three other people had gone to the city and heard the gospel. Someone shared the gospel with them. They became believers. They were there for two or three weeks and whoever shared the gospel with them discipled them. They got to go to church and see church and then they had to go back to their home village. And when they went back to their home village, they only knew two things. Number one, we should tell people what God has done in our lives and they did. And we should meet together as a church because that's what we've modeled. That's what we've seen. And they did that. So we saw them a year later and those four people had become 60 people, okay? They had led 56 people to faith. Their family, most of their family, their friends. Uh, and we met them. They were meeting as a church. They had no idea what they were doing. Someone would stand up and open the Bible, read the passage, and they would just talk about it. Um, they had a hymnal that they had been given. So they would sing songs. They lived together. It was one of the, one of the cooler things I got to see is they did uh, the offering, and people literally brought up their first fruits. Like they would bring up cucumbers and squashes and they would give of what they had because that's what they read in the Bible. So we left, we went back a year later, those 60 people had become 120 people. And the, the small room they were meeting in, they couldn't fit anymore. So they decided that they would start a new church. No one gave them any strategy. They just thought, hey, people are walking two hours one direction to come to church. Let's start a church over there. So they kind of multiplied, started two churches. And now, 12 years later, there are more than 25 churches in that district. It's amazing. And it's, it's not a, praise God. It's not anything we did or honestly anybody did. God just worked. 
And God is working all over the world. We have the privilege at Sojourn to go back every year and do theological training for these pastors. We ask one question, what do you want to grow in? What do you need help in? And they tell us, and I take some sojourners, and we go and teach the Bible to them. So it's amazing to think about the growth in Nepal or around the world. We've talked stories about the growth in North Africa or in other places. But we need to remember that there are still more than 2 billion people, billion with a B, 2 billion people who have limited to no access to the gospel. And this is why we as a church are committed to reaching the lost and sending our people to the nations. We wanna give our money, our attention. We wanna give our very lives so that people can know who Jesus is. Why are we so committed to taking the gospel to the reached? Why do we send our friends and our family and our leaders? Why do we sacrifice financially so we can send people? Because God's very heart is for the lost. Very heart is for the lost. How do we know that? We open the Bible and we read its pages. He loves the lost, he loves the unreached, and he's commanded us as the church to go and tell. As we look at, at Rahab's story in Joshua 2, and in the larger story of 2 through 6, we see God making his name known to his people, to the nations all over the world. In fact, the focus of all of this, the main character in the story is the mercy of God. More than Rahab, more than Israel or the surrounding nations, the focus of Joshua 2 through 6 is on God and his mercy. His mercy on Israel his mercy on the spies, on Rahab, on the nations. And that same mercy we read about in the story is the same mercy he offers to you and I. It's the same mercy available to us in the cross. We are invited to trust and believe in what God has done for us. Part of the story of Rahab that's really easily missed is she had a desire for a sign. She wanted something physical, tangible, that would remind her of God's promises. In Joshua chapter two, verse 12, we see that's exactly what happens as she asks the spies for this. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign, a physical sign. Give me something to show that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. What Rahab longed for was a sign of promise something to remind her and the spies that she would not be cast aside like she often was, that they would remember the promise that had been given to her. And this is, this is the promise that was given to her. Verse 17, now the men had said to her, this oath you made to us swear will not, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window. So the sign she asked for, the sign that was given is here's a scarlet rope, a red rope, we want you to tie it in the window. And that's exactly what happened when she uh, sent the spies out. She immediately tied that rope and it was there until they came and destroyed Jericho. So she was to place that rope in the window. And when the Israelites came to destroy the city, they would pass over her house and not destroy her. Does that sound familiar? Passed over her house. Exodus chapter 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So the story of Rahab and the promise of a sign and that scarlet rope, that red rope, was a reminder of what God had done in the Exodus. So much of the story points back to the Exodus, that just as destruction and judgment was coming to Egypt and those who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, they would be passed over. Rahab and her family were gonna be passed over from judgment. Both of these stories, Rahab and Exodus, point forward to a greater promise. I often say the Old Testament is a neon sign pointing to the beauty and promise of Jesus. And that's exactly what this story is, both of these stories. When we look at the story of Rahab, I want us to be overwhelmed by the mercy of God on display. God showed unmerited favor, unmerited mercy to a Gentile prostitute. He was showing mercy to the surrounding nations by making his power known so they could fear him. And he's making himself known, showing us his mercy today because he invites us to believe and trust in his work on the cross. Through Christ's work on the cross, our sins have been forgiven and we've been made right with God and we are brought into a family, safe from destruction, and now we have a place. We have a family, we have belonging. This morning, I wanna give us three invitations to obedience. We read this, how do we obey? Number one, I want you to consider embracing the mercy of God in your own life. The mercy that Rahab experienced, the mercy that we often see in the Old and the New Testament is the same mercy, radical mercy, that's available to you. If you're not a Christian, I want you to embrace Jesus for yourselves. Today is the day. Today, this is the last day of the year. What better way to go out than to trust in Jesus? You know what, if you're a Christian, you can do the same thing. Believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus for your life now. What can the love, the pursuing love of God do in your life? Is there some hidden sin that you've hidden for so long, that you've deceived yourself for so long that you're afraid to share? Share it, confess it, confess it to your brothers. Confess it to your pastors, confess it to your small group leader, to your community group leader, and find true freedom in the gospel. Do you have an unreconciled relationship? Maybe it's a, a family member or someone else where instead of confronting and confessing and, and loving and forgiving, you just avoid. The gospel allows you to be reconciled with your brother. Or because of God's love, you don't have to perform anymore. You don't have to deceive yourself or try to deceive God. You can find your joy and identity in who God is, how he's made you, because he loved you at your worst. So embrace God's love for you. Embrace God's mercy in your own life. Number two, embrace God's passion for the nations. Now, as the missions pastor, I'm supposed to say that, right? So in the back, the ushers have one-way tickets to North Korea. You can just pick one, one on your way up. I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. But I do want you to ask yourself, what role, what part in God's plan for the nations does he have for you? Because here it is. He does have a part for you to play. Because that's what the Bible tells us. The Great Commission is not given to a select few. It's given to all the church. How has he called you to use your time, your resources, your talents to reach the nations of the world? I want you to remember God's mercy toward you and let that gratitude and love motivate you to share the gospel with the lost. 
Ask yourself, what would God have me to do in obedience to the nations? Here's a few ideas. You could give. We have an Advent offering. You could give sacrificially to make that happen so that we can send more missionaries, love them better. You could go. We have nine trips this year that you could go on to all kinds of places. Um, Consider going on a trip. Or maybe you have a job where you're like, hey, I could take my job overseas. I could live overseas and share the gospel. Do that. Or maybe you're like, God has been pulling me to go overseas midterm or long-term for a long time, and I've just avoided it. Now's the time. Now's the time. Thirdly, you could serve. Go pick up a prayer card on the back wall. Pray for one of our people. Love them. Send them an email. Send them a care package. Serve our people overseas. So ways to, invitations to obedience. Embrace the mercy of God in your own life. Embrace God's passion for the nations. And then third, I wanna take us back to what Rahab longed for. What Rahab longed for was a sign of promise. And God's gift to us is that we can meditate on God's mercy through the sign of promise he's given to us, that we will not be forgotten, that we will not be cast aside. We have been given communion to remember God's love for us. Communion was given so that we know that God's pursuing love is for his people. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the new covenant shed for you. As often as you eat, as you drink, you're remembering the Lord's death until he returns. Our tradition here at Sojourn is to come forward, take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine. And as we we dip and as we eat, these are physical reminders that God's mercy has been washed over us, that we can sit and soak in the love of God. So my third invitation is for you as a believer to take this last year and to be reminded of God's pursuing love of you. No matter what you've done or who you are or the lies you believe, God loves you. And communion is a reminder that you can come to him as you are with all your junk and he loves you as you are. If you're not a Christian, that same invitation is open to you. We're gonna ask you not to come and take communion because this is a family meal. But the same love and mercy that God poured out on us as Christians, as he poured out on Rahab, he wants to pour out on you as well. Sit in your seat and allow the the love of God to fill your heart. Trust in and believe in the promises you've heard this morning. Communion is a gift and I want us to embrace it. Let's pray.